Well, increasing the number of swings you take increases the number of hits you make. Hi everyone, this is Sudeshna from The Abundant Psyche and you are listening to the Not So Corporate Podcast. Here we talk about all of the not so corporate things that we do as corporate entrepreneurs within and outside of corporate life. And today I have with me my good friend, my former colleague and the one and only amazing Joey Chu. Joey has been with PwC. He started as a consultant, which is where we met. And he did data science and ML engineering in the AI team, moved to Japan to set up the AI labs for PwC in Japan. And then he moved to Mercury and he works as a technical product manager there. I want to talk to Joey a lot about the technical side of product management the commercial aspect of it, and also his career so far, things that he thinks will be exciting in the future or not. I'm really excited for this chat. Welcome to the show, Joe. How are you? Hey, thanks, Sudeshna. That was a very kind introduction that I'm not sure I fully deserve, but thank you. It was very accurate and factual. Well, thanks. Well, so do you want to tell us a bit more about your journey from PwC to the more technical side, which is AI and ML, which is where we met, and then taking it even one step further into technical product management? What, how has your journey been so far? Yeah, I think I'll probably skim through a little bit at the beginning because I feel like, yeah, and I think... A lot of the other people that you've spoken to, maybe already know that, but then I'll try to elaborate a bit more about product management, which I think is even today still quite an unclear job and not a lot of people know what product management is, particularly technical product management, which is the technical role and kind of how the data science skills play into that. I joined Peter eight years ago now, working together with you in a consulting team doing data science. So that was doing data science work for consulting clients, particularly women financial services which again is where we met and then kind of transition or maybe specialize more heavily into ML engineering, which is when PwC set up our AI team back in 2016, 17, yeah, something 17. like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which for those of you who don't know, is a team that's internal team that's set up to really build AI solutions for PwC and also for our clients. I was then doing that for a few years and then PwC Japan wanted to set up essentially a very similar team which they called AI Lab and I came over to help set up that as well. Did that for about two years before I left and joined Macari, which I think, again, probably not a lot of your viewers <laughs> know Macari. So for those of you who have not heard of it, we are Japan's uh, leading marketplace app. So it's C2C, it's basically an app where anyone can buy and sell items, mainly secondhand items. Uh, we are a relatively young company. We were started in 2013 and IPO'd five years later as Japan's first tech unicorn, actually. So it does still remain a lot of that startup culture, even until now. And now I work as a technical product manager especially within the marketplace itself. So, so we have a few different domains, but I work on the marketplace. Joe, were you always interested in the technical side? And did you think that consulting was a good starting point for you to have discovered your technical side? I think I was always interested decision-making and doing decision-making in a 
quantitative way. I think that's what drew me to data science in the first place. And then when I moved into kind of the AI team, at that point, I think I was more interested in just technology in general, just exploring by that time machine learning was a password and just exploring what kind of value we could get out from it. So I think I would say, yeah, I was always interested in being technical and using technology, but also being quite cognizant of like why, which for me was about decision-making, mm-hmm. which is also, again, that's also what drew me to machine learning in particular, rather than software engineering, because mm-hmm. you know, ultimately machine learning is used for decision-making. And that's also what I like, rather than just building software itself. That is just pure gold because I think not a lot of people realize the value that machine learning has to offer the senior leadership of most traditional businesses, even till date, classify machine learning or think of machine learning as just one of those things that can be put together with software engineering. But as we have discussed before, and we know that probably nothing like traditional software engineering just makes it so much more powerful. Yeah, yeah, precisely. Machine learning engineering is so different from software engineering. Like the way you value a, a machine learning product versus a software product is completely different. Like the, what you use it for and the dynamics behind how you implement it and like even the cost of maintaining, developing it is all completely different. Yeah. You know. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, then from machine learning to how come to product development and not be remaining in the ML field itself, or are you still in that? Yeah, so I'm loosely still in the ML field, I would say. I'll answer that later, but to answer your question, why I'm moving for that minute. When I was in the AI team, essentially we started to build a lot of machine learning solutions. And after a while, I felt that, or at least what was interesting to me in building those machine learning solutions is more in terms of the product management side of it, rather than the actual building side of it. And maybe I'll take a short detour here to maybe explain what product management is. Yeah, please, yeah. Because I think if you ask 10 people, you might get 10 different answers. So so this is just my view of it. Although I think a lot of people do agree, but the number one job of a product manager is to define what the problem is that you're trying to solve. And actually, in many ways, that has a lot of parallels with consulting. And I think, I do think a lot of consultants would make good product managers as well. So what I found when I was in the AI team was that we did a lot of building, but oftentimes we would build machine learning solutions that did not end up being used. (laughs) I can see you already nodding and I think you've seen many examples of this where somebody has a great idea of, oh, we can use this, we can use AI to predict this thing and it'll be so cool or whatever. Mm. And then people go off and do this for three, six months or even longer building mm. it. And then it's a huge launch party or whatever. Everyone's excited and then no one uses it, right? And then it sort of carries on in a zombie mode for a year or two before it finally gets killed. And I just found that the biggest problem in making a solution live, deliver value, is just focusing on the problem and showing early on that it solves a problem for someone. Mm-hmm. And that I think is the number one job of a product manager should be doing. I love that. Like, honestly, yesterday itself, I was on this other thing where I was literally, people were like, what technology should I learn? And I was like, actually, forget about the technology, fall in love with the problem. 
identify the right problem to solve because there are a lot of problems to solve. Doesn't mean that you need to solve all of them. Yeah. Find the right problem and that'll make you money. And yeah. that is so true. Half the, or maybe even 80% of the battle is in actually defining and understanding the right problem. So yeah. true. Yeah. Exactly. So maybe to follow on that, like what I do as a technical product manager and why I say I'm loosely still in the machine learning industry. Oh, more and more equally, I'm definitely still in the data science business for sure. And maybe tangentially in the machine learning industry. So what a technical product manager, again, different companies define it differently, but at Mercari, we, our product development process is very data-driven. So A-B testing and experimentation is a huge part of how we make decisions about which features we're going to build, which direction we're going to move our product into, which new product lines we want, we're going to invest in. And how we do that is essentially A-B testing. So before anything gets shipped, we A-B test it. Do you want to tell, to explain, uh, explain yeah. what A-B testing is? Yeah, yeah, yeah because exactly. I'm nodding, but I think for the listeners, it might just be beneficial, yeah. So let's say you have, you have a product. Let's just think of a website. Let's take a, I'll take a very simple example. You have a website and you want to launch a new, let's say a new design of a button, an easy one. Right now it's red. You want to try to change it to blue, right? So, so you do your engineering, you change it to blue, but instead of launching it immediately, what you would do is do an A-B test. So A usually refers to your control, which is your, your current version. So let's say the red button, and then you have B, which is the change that you want to try, which is a blue button. But in, uh, by the way, this usually it's not just A-B, it's usually A, B, C, D, E to N, whatever. So you have green, gray, whatever. And then you release, let's say, and B to X percentage of your users, and then you release your B variant to another percentage of users. And then you collect the results and then you see which one does better. And that's the very simple version of it, but there's a lot of things to do in terms of defining what you're measuring, whether it's statistically powered, all that kind of stuff. And then you use those results to say, yes, we're going to ship this new feature or not, which is a very data-driven way of you know, deciding how you build a product rather than you know, debate and discussion. Yeah, be in the room and be like, yeah, we want that and or customer surveys. I mean, I've seen a lot of that. People mm. use surveys a lot to design products. And personally, I think that's quite a bad idea because customers rarely know what they want. People think that customers are self-aware, but unless the option is put in front of you, yeah. you just don't know what they'll choose. You can yeah. say that I'll choose this versus that, but actually testing is perhaps the more short way, don't you think? I would say this, the qualitative methods definitely have their place in the toolbox, right? You, you need to be able to do interviews and your surveys as well, focus groups. But you, you, the important thing is that you need to measure mm. what you actually launch with. So I think, especially in early stages of the product development, a lot of people do more interviews just to get the fuzzy shape of what the solution is and mm. that's fair because at yeah. that stage you don't have that data yeah but if you can once you have the data like, i think so certainly nowadays anyway any big software company would definitely be doing A-B testing yeah no i agree i mean the qualitative bits are definitely interesting gives you a lot more 
rich context. Mm. Uh, but for example, like something like a red and blue button, <laughs> your customer just wouldn't know. Or for example, one thing that I've seen that we debate a lot on or ask customers is how much would you be willing to pay for this? And most people have no idea. The, the most common answer is as less as possible, right? Like, <laughs> but that doesn't mean that you build your product to be like as cheap as possible. But that's, right. I think, where the art and the science of qualitative versus quantitative sort of comes yeah. in. Yeah. And I think, honestly, it is still quite similar to consulting, I think, where, like you say, it is that art of, you need to have both the qualitative and the quantitative evidence. Mm. And then the art of balancing both of that together to make the right decision for your customers. Absolutely. So you mentioned technical product management as opposed to product management. Tell us a bit more about what's the difference in your mind? Is there any difference? So again, it really depends on how each company defines it. But well, so I think there's two main trends that I see in the industry and in terms of how most companies describe it. One way is technical product managers tend to work on more internal platforms, whereas product managers tend to work on more customer-facing products. So so example for this is, for example, if someone is working on, let's say Facebook probably has some kind of advertising platform. If you're working on a platform, Probably you're a technical product manager. I don't know, by the way, like uh, people from Facebook might be rioting right now. But then if you're working on something that's the, the app itself, for example, that the customer directly interacts with, you might be product manager. But for Mercari and I think maybe the other half of companies, really the difference is whether or not you have a kind of a technical skill set. So if you have a specific domain that, that you're a specialist in, we'll just call you a technical product manager. I see. Okay. So what from the ML world then have you taken to your current mm. role and how is, you mentioned that you are still loosely aligned yeah. with ML. Yeah. So, so as you might guess or not, there's a lot of ML in our product. So I'm not the only one actually. There are a few other product managers with uh, ML background, but I work with a lot of the products that have a ML element to it. So without revealing too much, an example is currently on a part of the process, you have to list an item. So you have to take a picture and then describe some things about it so that you can sell it. We use a lot of AI in the listing process. So when you take a picture, we predict you know, what the item is, what category it is, what brand, what color, and things like that. So that's the ML side of it. So I do still work on a lot of ML, ML-assisted products. Got it. And I think that brings us very nicely to your technology that you are most excited about. And I think we have talked about this for several years, Joe, the use of machine learning outside the big tech firms, outside the the research labs and so on. So tell me a bit more about why you think that ML will be such a powerful technology and that excites you the most? I think in terms of its possible impact, I think we've all seen it with how the tech companies do it, right? I wouldn't want, okay, I don't want to say everything, but it's really a lot of machine learning in all the tech products that we use day to day. And a lot of us don't see it 
at all. For example, even in my app, right, when we do the listing process, not all of our predictions are shown to the user. We make predictions in the background. And those predictions are used to refine the matching process so that when other users do search, we give them a more relevant search. But the users never sees any of it. So I think the impact is there, it's huge. But in the past, it's always been, I don't think intentionally, but it's always been concentrated in essentially tech companies or like a really small number of leading companies, right? But the cost of developing such solutions has gone down like dramatically, right? Even when we were working together, I think that was already a lot easier. But even then, even, even simple things like installing a Python notebook, back then, it would still take at least a few hours trying to figure out how, how to install Python on your notebook and how to get, to get that running. But now you have Google Colab, you have all of these other things where it's less than 10 minutes. Yeah. So the technical side of it, the cost of implementing is going down much lower. And then on the, I would say the human side of it, maybe, there are much more supply of data scientists, supply of machine learning engineers today compared to before when not many people had heard about it. But now you have you have bachelor's degrees, you have courses and everything. And the younger people, honestly, that I see now, like the graduates that have just joined and are doing data science, doing machine learning, they are way better than I was five years ago. This is what every previous right. generation of <laughs> professionals feel, I think. Yeah. Which is actually really good. We are getting great people coming out, but sorry, interrupted you. Yeah. So the cost of it on technology, the cost of it on the human side is going down. And I believe that essentially the barriers of entry of implementing AI is going to drop. And I hope that this is much more populated beyond just tech companies because the potential extra value customers yeah. can get is huge. You're so right. It's just become so cheap and people understand it more, graduates understand it more, data is abundant. Things like when we were working together like four, five years ago, I don't think GPT-3 was the source. (laughs) And now I look at the world and go, oh my goodness, there are hundreds of startups just based with GPT-3 at the core. And I was like, will a company that's developed its product completely based on an open source thing Will it get funded? And these companies are getting funded and getting like, you know, getting really great valuations. So I don't know if that's a good or bad thing, though. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know whether that's a good or bad thing, but it is definitely the trend. And I would not imagine that it will be reversed anytime soon. Unless suddenly these big open source players come and decide that, okay, no, we want to shut everything down. But that'll be, I don't think that is happening either. Yeah, I mean, it proves that there's a lot of demand for it. Mm. Uh, But I suspect at some point in the future, people will start to realize which are the, who are the people building AI that really develops, delivers value versus AI for the sake of AI or... Yeah, and I think with the core of the software, for example, I mentioned GPT-3, but also if you think about H2O or Data Robot or Mm -hmm. someone like that, they are actually running the data science experiments a lot easier. And the more that happens, I think the more you need to dwell on the, you'll almost be forced to dwell on the problem. 
unless you don't want to, in which case I think you'll walk into sunset, right? But as long as you fall in love with that problem solving, what is the problem that we are trying to solve and use ML in that, I think it's an interesting problem. Like I was telling you earlier, Joe, one of the pieces of software that I use for editing and mm. I'm, I'm not someone who loves editing, but this software basically, it's based on ML. It does speech to text. And then I edit out the bits that I don't require or don't want. So I'm, instead of editing video, I'm editing text, which is like for someone who's not an expert at video editing, doesn't want to become an expert at video editing. It's like easy, super easy. So now suddenly you have the super powerful tech and you make that technology accessible to me. Guess who you are pulling out of the equation, the low value video editors who were not adding much value. Right, uh, or at least at the simple task of just removing yeah. Yeah. silences, right? Yeah, exactly. So I, I definitely think that it's at a point where it'll be perhaps not too long before we realize actually yeah, it's all around us. Well, actually, it is yeah. all around us. But I mean, in this example, you describe it as it's editing software, right? It's not AI software. Like the reason why you use it is for editing, and that's the problem it solves for you. It just so happens that the it uses AI is an to AI. do that job a little bit better. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, if you think about it, some part of how we are interacting on Zoom or any video meeting, the background is blurred out. That is essentially also like, you don't think about these things because they are like so obvious, but yeah, I think it's really fascinating and I'm quite excited by the problems that AI will solve for us. But also I wonder if it will also start throwing your problems at us. Like we have always talked about bias and all of those bits. And of course the problem, people start building things that are not really useful. Yeah, that's, I'm sure the, the market dynamics solve that problem. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I think to be completely clear on the other end, unless you fail, you sort of 100% don't know whether this will work or that is there. Like the best you can do is eliminate the chances or minimize the chances of failure. You can't really eliminate it. But anywho, coming to the next bit around the future of work, therefore, like you have worked across the globe and you suggested that commercial real estate might not survive. What are your thoughts on where the future of work is going mm -hmm. after having worked across, like you pretty much are a globetrotter and you have lived across the continents and so on. Well, so this is maybe one of my favorite topics. So case in point, my, my current company is fully remote. We have an office. We have, a, we have a building kind of in the middle of Tokyo where it's exorbitant rent, I imagine. But since the pandemic started, we moved to a fully remote policy. So anyone in the company can work from anywhere in Japan and there's just no need to go into the office, right? So, so I'm still in Tokyo. Some days I go into the office and I see maybe 10, 20 people. And which is less than a 10% utilization probably. And most people that I speak to have no intention of coming to the office at all. I've had teammates who have moved out from Tokyo to go to the countryside, to go live in the mountains, to go by the beach. And it's not just my company, right? I know 
a lot of people also in other tech companies have similar policies. A friend of mine who you know, but I don't know if they want to be mentioned by name, but a mutual friend recently spent the entire ski season in the mountains skiing and working from there. So mm-hmm. the perks of remote work are extremely high. And I can't really imagine workers wanting to come back into to the office, at least not full-time. Uh, I, I don't think it would be zero. I don't think it would be either spectrum, either end of the spectrum. And I, I think it would be somewhere in the middle. And But I think it would be closer to the not coming back into the office side of the spectrum. And I think even if it's in the middle, that dynamics means that the economics of real estate is completely changed. I think how people are going to use, you know, city centers in particular is going to change a lot. I, I can't imagine right now most cities have a, most of the center is for business, is for offices. I just can't imagine that staying the same. Yeah, I think I agree to most of it, though I'll have to say a couple of things that I've been reading on it have been the junior folks who are just getting into work. It's really hard for them to get the level of coaching and mentorship that they require with most people being remote. So I think we'll definitely need to think through the remote working policies on how to support these folks. And the second thing perhaps, which is interesting, is that I have definitely seen more of a split between the tech companies have gone more remote, the bankers and the private equity firms, interestingly, they still want to go in five days a week, which was really surprising to me. But like, I was like, really, are you really going back? five days a week and some of my friends said yeah we are and we find it works better and then you have people like me or our company which is like pretty much in the almost techie so we go twice a month or something like that i think two points i want to make one is around the choice of coming back into the office on the employee side i think depends a lot on your priority if work is your number one priority in life I'm going to guess you will go back into the office willingly. But I think if you have something better to do that, than work, I, then maybe not. But the other thing around kind of new graduates, especially, that's a very real problem. And I, and I do agree. And I, I don't know what the solution is. But I don't think the solution is to go back to how it was the way before. I think it's more a challenge for us to think of how to solve this. In, in, yeah. In, in, Yeah, definitely. I I think so too. Though I have to say after a couple of years of going, like not being in office and then going back, it definitely in my mind felt very expansive to be in the office. So my eyes were not hitting the walls of my room, but were actually going beyond and seeing other people sitting and working, which I work is definitely a priority of mine is it the number one priority in my life probably not but I still felt like it was interesting to have that experience and then I started asking myself maybe I should go to a co-working space nearby from time to time without actually maybe I don't want to sit at home but I don't want to travel for an hour to get into work so the happy middle might just be like a co-working space nearby so I wonder if we'll have suddenly co-working spaces develop all across the country, even at the remote locations, I don't know. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good point, actually. I think like our communities will be reshaped. I think people will form... Right now, a lot of people... Well, a lot of people, especially in places like London and Tokyo, right? Your core group, a lot of them are your co-workers. Yeah. But I feel like that doesn't have to be the case. And it's probably even more healthy to have a more diverse <laughs> community. And I think people will work in one company, like you say, maybe go to a more local space to work. And then their office relationships are actually with people from other companies while still being working for your own company separately. So I think that that's also another interesting model of that. Yeah. I and we'll I more. Yeah, I think, and that could actually bring a lot of interesting insight and customer centricity into a lot of our products as well, because how often do you get to sit next to someone who's actually perhaps using your product? And yeah, I think that could be quite interesting. I'm excited about what the future of work brings. What would your advice be to someone who's just starting out and who perhaps wants to take this path that you have taken into product management or consultants who actually want to transition into product management? The thing about product management is even now, the role is very undefined. It's not very clearly defined. You have a huge variance between companies. And because of that, the requirements are also very varied. I think most people can probably agree on a few traits that you need but not so much what is the experience that you need and what are the hard skills that you need. But at least from what I see, and actually from what I see, a lot of people have very different backgrounds. People at Bukit Mukari have been software engineers before, data scientists before, or marketers before, or coming directly as a graduate. So really, I think that the background doesn't matter that much. But at least in our interviewing process we ask a lot about your past experience we want to see people who have done things have solved problems which is fairly similar to consulting i think and i think if you can demonstrate that in a very real way it's a good way to get into product management and maybe networking is also quite a big thing speak to people in tech industry speak to product managers and ask them what can you do to help or what they think you should be trying to do to get a job. And one last thing, Joe, if I may ask, you have had quite an interesting and quite a successful career so far. So do you think there has been anything that you have done that doesn't get talked about in the corporate world as much, but that has made you incredibly or perhaps more successful than others? And looking for the not-so-corporate thing that you do that makes you more successful? Well, firstly, thank you. Something that's not-so-corporate, maybe something that's not-so-obvious. But firstly, I do want to say that I think a lot of people's successes has to do with luck as well. I don't want to discount it completely, but I do want to acknowledge that I have been lucky in terms of meeting the right people, working on the right projects, and that does play a big part of it. But, and maybe part of that, maybe what I've been good at is generating luck, doing a lot of different things, or increasing the number of swings you take increases the number of hits you make, right? Mm. Generating luck, speaking to a lot of people, staying in touch with a lot of people. I, I think maybe I would hone in on that, actually. I feel a lot of people focus on especially when you think about networking everyone knows okay networking is important for your career and people go out and they meet new people and a lot of people do that even they don't want to etc but what people don't do a very good job of is keeping in touch I think mm. most people 
if you find that, oh, I have nothing in common with this person, there's no immediate benefit. They sort of don't keep in touch, but keeping in touch, like you and I have, has been what, eight years, seven, like yeah. a long time. Yeah, a long time. It's what people don't do. And actually, that's where your strongest relationships are. And the longer you stay in touch with, the more varied your connections go on to do. So although you and someone else may have intersected at some point in the past, what they do now may be completely different from you. And reconnecting or staying in touch, you have so much more to learn because they're doing something different from you. That is beautiful. I love that because, yeah, I love your mention of luck and also to a certain degree, you create your own luck. Of course, some of the luck you don't create is probably being born to the right set of human beings. Right, yeah. That, that's, that's like... Nothing you can do about you, it. You can't do anything about it. But beyond, say, about in your adult life, you perhaps go on to create a lot of your own luck and you take personal responsibility. And actually, yeah, you're so right, meeting people, being in touch. And we are in business because businesses are about people and if you don't keep in touch with people businesses don't exist and yeah like people do business with people they like thank you so much for your wisdom i love that and for anyone who's been listening so far thank you so much for hanging out with us and thank you so much for listening if you enjoyed this or found it valuable share it with your friends and i'll see you the next time and thank you joe for being with us. Great. Thanks very much, Sudeshna. It's been really fun.